Here at Early Excellence, we specialise in early childhood education. We offer expert advice and guidance through training, consultancy and classroom design. With the Early Excellence podcast, we aim to inspire and support you as well as challenge your thinking. So if that's what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. Hello everybody, Andy Burt here. Welcome along to episode 97 of the Early Excellence podcast. In this week's episode, we're joined by Sarah Watkins. Now, Sarah is an ex-head teacher. She's an associate lecturer at the University of Worcester, and she's also someone who is very, very passionate about outdoor learning. So we had a great chat. Uh, It was lovely to speak to Sarah. Um, As part of the conversation, we talk about all sorts of things. We talk about the importance of outdoor learning. We talk about um, outdoor experiences for older children, which is really interesting to talk about. Um, We also also talk about um, how children view outdoor spaces, which again is really fascinating. Um, and we talk about the importance of risk and physical challenge for young children. So yeah, lots there to really get you thinking. Um, so here you go. Here's my early excellence podcast chat with Sarah Watkins. So I am delighted to say that I'm joined today uh, on the podcast uh, by Sarah Watkins. Sarah, hello. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you so much for inviting me, Andy. Oh, it's a pleasure. It is a pleasure. Sarah, I thought we'd start. I know you do a variety of different, you have a variety of different roles. So you support schools in terms of outdoor learning. Uh, you also work in higher education as well. But when I when I read through your the list of the different things that you do, it was so wide and varied that I actually felt that you were probably the best person to tell us about what you do. So would you mind just uh, introducing yourself? Would that be okay? Yeah, of course. Uh, I do have quite an interesting portfolio, I guess. Um, and I started off in the charity sector. So I went straight from doing my degree to work for a a charity that works with disadvantaged people across the UK. Uh, And as part of that, I was going into schools. I did then become local authority arts advisor. Uh, And going into schools, I was thinking, wow, you know, it looks so, so fun working in a school. So I retrained to be a teacher. I did think it would be much more family friendly, which wasn't quite the case. (laughs) I realised about the long hours. Um, And then from that, um, I was then made head of English for a, a mat of 10 schools. Uh, and then I went from being in a three-form entry school to being head of school at a tiny rural school, which was fantastic. And it was my old primary school as well, which was lovely. It's such a distinctive place. Um, and then I became university lecturer, which I do at the moment. Uh, I'm an author of a couple of books. Uh, I've also worked in further education as well, teaching English GCSE, which is interesting, going from early years teaching to <laughs> teaching GCSE English. And now I run my own outdoor learning company called uh, Dandelions uh, and yeah, go around the country, talk at conferences really about basically what I've learned about outdoor learning and what, uh, you know, what I found in my personal practice. So it's very much, you know, my drawing on research, but really, you know, from being literally in the field. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. See, that is wide and varied, isn't it? I, I, I can't I can't let us carry on without asking you about becoming the head teacher at the primary school that you used to attend. Um, what was that like? That must have been really lovely, but I, I guess a bit surreal, was it? It was absolutely amazing. I mean, what was really lovely, I took over at a bit of an odd time, really. There was a transition period going on and there'd been a bit of a breakdown in communication between 
the head of school and the parents. It was just one of these things that had happened. So I actually started just after Christmas and I came at Christmas just to meet the parents. So I was just kind of milling about making myself available really at this Christmas fair, feeling slightly awkward. Um, And I had a few questions from parents, you know, what will your approach on this be? You know, I'm not very happy about this. What are you going to do? And then a four-year-old came up to me and she asked me the most important question. And she said, well, Mrs. Watkins, do you know where the secret hiding place is? And I said, I do. And she clearly didn't believe me. (laughs) And she said, well, you have to prove this now. So I held a hand and went outside and said, this is it here, isn't it? And it's just a hollowed out bit of earth behind some fir trees. But that's where I used to hide as a four-year-old. She <laughs> was absolutely stunned. And I think the parents really loved it that I had attended that school. My parents moved me down from London when I was quite little. They wanted a bit of the good life, really. They wanted to move to the Welsh borders and mm. completely change their lives. And for me, it was a you know huge change as well. But just amazing to be back at this very distinctive, tiny little school that I'd had such great memories of. Fantastic. So that's brilliant. Brilliant. And whereabouts are you based at the moment? I, I, I should know this, but whereabouts are you in the world? In Herefordshire. So just down the road from Hay on Wye, right on the Welsh borders. Um, yeah, really lovely rural area. Fantastic. And the other thing I know about you, because I did a little bit of research on, on Twitter uh, in the lead up to, to meeting you on here, uh, was that you have a very fancy bike. That's right, I do. And actually, it's it's had a real impact on what I do because uh, the local council, Herefordshire Council, I, I don't know if other councils have done this, they decided as part of their kind of sustainability drive to offer these cargo bikes. So it's like a trike with a big wooden, I was going to say basket, it's a sort of big wooden holding mm-hmm. area. I don't know how you describe yeah, it really. It's, big, isn't it? it's almost like a bath sort of size. It's you know, really it's a big yes. sort of size, isn't it? Yeah, it is like a small bath. You're right. Yeah. So they were offering these for free to small businesses. If you could prove that you were making small journeys uh, in the car, you know, with heavy items and you would replace those with the bike. Um, So I thought, well, yeah, you know, I I really like the idea of this. But actually, so when I was successful and there was when I did my training on the bike, there was an electrician there. There were some builders. uh, There was a local cider company. We are in Herefordshire after all. (laughs) So all these people were deciding they were going to replace van journeys with this. Um, And it's been really amazing. But the first few times I used, I did fall off twice. (laughs) it doesn't corner very well you have to be very careful of and obviously when you've got a fire pit in there firewood uh, den making equipment it's pretty heavy as well Uh, but it's really made me think now about you know the journeys I make and how I can you know replace those and and also Mm -hmm. I used to take a, a lot more stuff in the car to sessions and now I'm really trying to think well you know how can I manage this with with the bike especially as I do holiday clubs where you have to take the food in for the children, so this is for children on free school meals and so on. Uh, so, yeah, it's been really interesting. And I've had loads of positive comments on the street about it, which has been lovely. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. It's something a bit different, isn't it? I think Definitely. it sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> sounds very good. Okay, so, and of course, we're going to talk about one of your passions today. We're going to talk about outdoor learning, aren't we? So, and of course, there is lots that we can discuss, lots that we can chat about. Um, but I thought we'd start off with something that, is incredibly important and that is just the the value of being outdoors you know the the which i think is something that we can so so easily forget we can in our busy lives we can so easily get out of the habit of 
of thinking about the outdoors as being valuable. And that's true, I think, in, in everyday life, but it's also true, I think, in terms of education as well. And so I thought we'd start off with a, a bit of a starter for 10, Sarah. Uh, could you tell us about the value of being outdoors? Would that be all right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many benefits. I think something that I really draw on is uh, research from some time ago, um, all around the theory of attention uh restoration theory uh, and this is by the Kaplans who are a husband and wife team who worked together for 30 plus years obviously a very good relationship <laughs> uh, and they came up with this theory they did lots of research uh, that found and established that even if you have a few minutes outside um, it helps with your mental health your well-being but also your productivity your focus um, and through their research they even found that um, I'm sort of looking at my window now that if you have a view of a tree say from your office uh, or your window that can be restorative for you uh, and they found that particularly with children uh, they have their attention directed on certain things you know from a very early age and that's intense there's a lot of work going on there uh, in terms of brain activity uh, and they found that it's really healthy and essential for healthy child development for children to then have some time in a natural space uh, to restore that uh, that attention and restore their well-being and they did find that it doesn't have to be a forest uh, or a huge woodland or even a very wild area um, it can just be a, a small patch of green uh, or just a couple of trees. Um, obviously, the wilder the area is, the, the more benefits there can be. Um, but research has also found that, um, say, people and children who um, have ADHD, being in na a natural setting, and again, that can just be a grassy space outside, um, can really help to alleviate the symptoms and can have the same impact as, say, dose of, of Ritalin. Um, so, so many different benefits. I mean, we know that it's healthy for children's cognitive development. Um, and it's not just about, uh, you know, having that sort of burning off that energy and so on. I'm working on a project at the moment where it's been funded by a really lovely local charity um, set up by a mum who was recently bereaved and her child loved to be outside. So that's what she wanted to fund. Uh, and we found through this project, we're working with children who have experienced trauma um, and we're getting them outside and um, doing outdoor learning activities with them. And we've done some really good uh, kind of well-being assessments at the start of this and also looking at their views of school in general. And it's been fascinating. After five or six weeks, we've noticed a huge change in terms of their well-being, um, but also their view of school, which has been really interesting, and their views of themselves, their confidence, their self-esteem. So I think particularly things like building and maintaining a fire I was going to say on their own, under supervision, you know, very much having that autonomy. <laughs> these children are actually in year six, you know, but also yes. using tools, learning these new skills and just being outside in nature uh, and having, so discussing that as well. So we discuss with them, you know, the five ways to well-being set out by the NHS, you know, being active, taking notice of things. Um, so that's been fantastic. Yeah, no, I and that sounds very rewarding as well, I would imagine. You know, working with, with children particularly who have um, been affected by trauma and then to see a difference in those children through the work that you do outdoors, that must be incredible. And I think the amazing thing is seeing them reflect on that process. Um, and it's been wonderful talking to the funders about it because it's obviously something that really matters to this particular mum who set this charity up. You know, she very recently lost her child to cancer. And she's funded a number of projects, but she said she's found it really rewarding 
seeing the impact on these particular children who, you know, some of these children have been bereaved themselves. And yeah, for me, I just find them really inspiring. And I, I've learned so much from it as well, particularly about giving children even more autonomy. I mean, that's a big part of my practice anyway, but it has reinforced to me that, you know, we need to give children more responsibility, you know, to build up their confidence. If we're always doing things for them and structuring everything, that they lose something. Yes. No, I think that's that's really interesting. And the other thing that I was I was going to sort of just come back to is that um my in my experience, I, I've done most of my work has been very specific to the early years. And so when when I talk about outdoor learning and experiences outdoors, I'm thinking about three, four and five year olds generally, or maybe younger. Um, whereas I think it's quite interesting that idea of actually, you know, perhaps children in year five or year six accessing mm. outdoors. And the benefits for, for those children in terms of outdoors, I think, is really interesting. Typically, I think what we often do within primary schools is we, we kind of have this approach where we will go and do their outdoor outdoor experiences in one block. So we will take them on a residential and they'll they'll use crates and they'll they'll be problem solving and being collaborative and doing all of those things. And then we will come back to the serious classroom work, whereas it's interesting what you're saying about the benefits for older children as well of actually accessing the outdoors over a longer period of time, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly noticed that. I mean, I've worked in every year group and I, at primary level um, and I really do find that, you know, a lot of schools that I'm visiting in my role um, as a, an associate lecturer. So I support trainee teachers on their placement. Um, and, you know, a lot of schools I go to, you know, they're doing forest school in the early years. And of course, there's amazing uh, practice going on in the early years. And there's so much autonomy given to children, uh, so much more scope for decision making. And then that seems to go as you go further at the school. And I know that's not true in every single school, but I certainly find on on the whole, there's less opportunities for for older children to get outside and they miss that. You know, they'll talk to me about it and say, oh, you know, when we were in reception, we used to go outside all the time. But but now that's not happening. I mean, one school I have been to recently, they have loose parts outside for year six and for Kiso Shoe for all the year groups. But looking out the window and seeing year six building a swing in the trees or one group of year six children had a laundry going. So some of them were ironing. I mean, it was fantastic seeing them using these you know, massive loose parts outside to create things. Mm. And I thought that's quite unusual. I, I haven't seen that as much. No, definitely. In your experience when working with older children within the primary range, is there a difference there in terms of, I suppose, the starting points in terms of outdoor play? I suppose what I'm getting at is, do children get out of the habit of playing outdoors um, through school? Yeah. Probably something I've thought about it before. Um, perhaps because they're used to a sort of 15-minute playtime and then that's it. Do they do? Do you have to have a period of time at the beginning of of sessions where you kind of get back into it? Is I mean, one thing that true? that school who uh, put out the loose parts, one thing they they um, put in place, which very much like with early years, you know, when we give children, it's almost like training about if we introduce something new, you know, like change something within the the classroom. Uh, with when they introduced all the loose parts to year six they said you know there's rules like scrap on scrap not on people because there was a temptation to get the large piece of foam and hit each other Uh, so there was some sort of 
rules put in place just to keep people safe. But I find in my personal experience, it's about giving children permission. And I find I'm a pack away sort of organization. So when I've worked with year six recently on outdoor learning, I'll bring hammocks and I'll bring soft toys and the den making equipment. And all of year six want to grab one of the soft toys. Oh, I want the penguin this week. I want the otter. And they build a relationship with it. And then they almost look at me as if, you know, just to check, is it okay? And they look at their peers because there's a certain level of embarrassment. But then they will make a house for that creature, uh, you know, give it a name. And every week they want to have the same soft toy. Uh, And I hear some of the year sixes telling me, you know, oh, mum's put the toys away now. You know, I'm not allowed those toys anymore. And I think there's this temptation to curtail childhood and kind of cut that off and say, well, you don't need those toys anymore. You've got your Xbox now, which I yes, think is a yeah. shame. It is a shame. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking about my children. Um, and certainly all, th- all three, I've, we have three boys and all three of our boys were definitely playing with things like small world and small construction really right, almost right the way up to secondary school, really. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of, um, so certainly all the way through primary in in year six, definitely they would go and build things with Lego and other materials and, and play in a kind of a, a imaginative kind of way with it. And you're right, I think sometimes we try and move on very quickly from that. Yeah, and I think, you know, I do find with year six, you know, that there can be this sort of embarrassment, but if myself, my assistant, you know, we make it clear, you know, through modelling and just playing alongside them and with them. Uh, but, you know, that's that's OK here. Nobody's going to yeah. tolerate any discrimination about this, you know, or, or any kind of unkindness. And, and then they can relax into it. I think it's it's there. They want to play, but it's somehow, you know, they don't have that permission in some ways. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it strikes me as well that, that what you do is is based on a lot of knowledge and also based on a lot of skill there. You know, to introduce materials, to to introduce resources to the children in terms of outdoor learning, it does it, it does take a really clear understanding of what the possibilities of those resources are and actually what the children might do with them, but and how we can support the children in terms of using the materials. And so, you know, introducing the resources carefully, I think, is important. And, and so that kind of brings me on to my, I suppose, my next question or, or area to, to discuss. And that is, I think sometimes I, I find that um, teachers or practitioners, when it comes to indoor learning, feel very skilled, very confident, will talk about their planning, talk about all sorts of things that they, they, they feel that they've got some control over mm-hmm. and, and um, feel quite confident with it. But when we talk about outdoor learning, it feels a bit like the confidence slips away a little bit and that people feel quite self-conscious about outdoor learning in terms of what it looks like, in terms of, you know, how it's presented, you know, it maybe doesn't look as, you know, as mm-hmm. clean and as nice as indoors or whatever it might be. And and so I was going to ask you about, you know, do you feel that anybody can um, can provide high quality outdoor learning? Yeah, I think it's very much about knowing the children. I mean, one thing I think is really important and that I found very powerful when I had a reception class was finding out how they view the space. And I've always found that very surprising. Um, So something I've done quite frequently is carry out an audit with the children. So with my last reception class that I had, um, we were auditing the space and making a, a video of the outdoor space for a French nursery 
Um, so I said to the reception children, you know, this is what we're going to do. And I gave them the iPad and I said, so where should we go and film? What are the most important parts? And I think this fits in really well with um, Professor Harry Heft a long time ago. He said children don't see the space in in terms of, you know, what it looks like and how beautiful it is. They look at it in terms of what they can do there. So, you know, a fence is a climbing opportunity, a flat surface is a sliding opportunity. And I mean, we had this amazing outdoor space. We had this big gazebo. We had a big cabin where they would get changed uh, into their um, outfits to go to forest school, which was a different area quite close by. Um, lots of big permanent structures, like a huge sand pit you could get into. Uh, and but those weren't the things they wanted to show these children in France. And they said, oh, yes, we must film this pond here, which was actually a puddle. <laughs> but, you know, they were then telling me, I, I was realising then they'd had this imaginative play going on for a, a number of days. They'd used some loose parts to set up a fishing area. Uh, and they were, they were filming it and they were saying to the French children, there are fish in here. And they were explaining all about the fish that lived in this pond. Uh, and then they wanted to come and show the children Roll Hill, which was just a, a grass slope. And especially to younger children, you know, these it wasn't a very big slope, but this was so important to them. You know, such an important feature of their outdoor area. Uh, and then some of the Polish children told me they wanted to film Pirat Tree. And I didn't know they called this tree Pirate Tree. Uh, and they were telling me that, that I'd seen them digging. I was trying to encourage them not to dig up all the roots. <laughs> but they were telling me that, you know, there was, there was treasure buried there. And they always refer to it as the, the Pirate Tree. Uh, there was Squish Pass. Some of the children told me this is where some berries dropped so uh, blackberries and so on, uh, and they would get squished on the path. And they used to like to sort of roll their wheeled vehicles over it. And I think just getting to know the area from the point of view of the children is really important. Then you can start to think about, uh, you know, what's there. Uh, and I think someone else who's really inspired me is Heli Nebelong, who's a, a landscape architect. And she, there's always some kind of genius loci about a space. There's something that makes it really special. So, for example, one nursery I saw in London, they said, the genius loci, the spirit of their place was this tree. When they arrived, uh, they felt everything had to be changed. It wasn't really suiting the children. Um, but this tree was something that had been there for you know decades. And it was, mm. it was a really important part of the space. Uh, and I do think having those natural, you know, rewilding the space is absolutely crucial. You know, putting more planting in, making it a, a more wild space. Uh, but I think people can sometimes overthink it. I mean, when I was writing my first book, I was interviewing someone who runs a play company, Ludicology. And he said his daughter came home from school. She was four years old. And she said, oh, daddy, it's been amazing. We've been to the woods today. And he thought, oh, that's that's great. But it's a bit strange. They didn't tell me they were going on a trip. You know? <laughs> uh, and she carried on talking about it. And he realized that she, what she was actually talking about was a rhododendron bush in the playground. So to her, the woods, you know, yeah. for a four-year-old, just, you know, a small amount of planting can make such a difference. Like, you know, you know, I was talking about my sort of hiding place at primary school, just that little bit of rewilding the space can make such a, a difference. I mean, I'm a huge advocate of loose parts. So I would say, uh, you know, that's my number one tip, really, uh, to have loose yes. parts in that space. Yes. And I know, you know, most people are doing that, but I've, one space I went to uh, as a consultant, it was completely bare with one sort of climbing structure, I'd say, that was uh, fixed. Uh, and they were worried about conflict that was happening quite frequently. Um, and introducing loose parts into that space made such a huge difference. Um, you saw so much more collaboration. The conflict reduced completely. Um, and the language was increasing as well. And we know that with loose parts. Um, there was more 
risk taking in terms of children being able to challenge themselves uh, and the adults were finding it a much less stressful time you know when the children were were outdoors but to go back to your question about anyone delivering outdoor learning uh, it's difficult isn't it because I mean it depends what you're talking about I mean I'm a forest school leader and with forest school there's a very specific ethos uh, and when people book me to do outdoor learning, it's generally to do fire and tools, which is perhaps what people feel less confident with. Yeah. Uh, so that can be quite tricky. But then I've met some scout leaders who are working in schools and they're saying, well, I can't do a fire because I'm not forest school trained. You can, you know, as long as your insurance um, is up to date and your insurance includes that. Uh, I know scout leaders have really good training, for example, in terms of fire and tools. So some people you know think that they can't do these things but they do actually have the skills and experience yeah no absolutely yeah it's it's interesting as well is in that i think um it links very much with what you were saying that actually i think everybody can access some sort of green space somewhere um you know even almost even if you are and and as i say as you said it doesn't even have to be what you would see as an adult as being that much of a green space in that the children will you know, even just a sort yeah. of small corner of the of, of the playground that might have a few trees and shrubs in it actually can become to the children a space that feels like a bit of a woodland area. It doesn't need to be much of a space. Um, I also think as well, just getting out there, you know, going yeah. regularly out to a, a space that is, if you can, even outside of the school grounds, I think that's really valuable. You know, seeing seeing an area whether that be the local park or uh, whatever, you know, whatever green space it might be, just as a sort of almost an area of shrubland, um, seeing it at different times in the year, having having the same shared experience throughout the year, going every, every two weeks or three weeks or whatever it might be, and noticing that there have been changes, noticing that there's a, there's a difference, you know, having a, even just experiencing the weather at different points in the yeah. year actually can be really valuable, I think. I think you're, you are leading on to one of the barriers here, though, aren't you? I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and yeah. the number one barrier when I did a bit of a straw poll of early years teachers was weather. Um, and there were sort of anxieties around lack of clothing. And I know that's really expensive mm-hmm. uh, to invest in. Uh, and that can be tricky. And, you know, often children don't come in appropriately dressed. And, you know, most schools, are, you know, they have all those spare coats and so on. It's great. Uh, so there are difficulties there. But also with um, preconceptions of parents and carers, you know. So I've certainly been in that situation as head of school. I had to deal with all complaints, you know. I became quite accomplished at that. Uh, and you know, really building that relationship with parent and carers, parents and carers. But I know that that is a real anxiety. Um, but I, I think it's so healthy. You know, you've got those sensory experiences, as you say, of every single season uh, and rain. You know, children, I was out in the pouring rain the other day. And if it's, especially if it's early years, if it really is torrential, you know, I understand, you know, children don't want to be in that all day because, you know, they do get cold quickly. But uh, we had a slight downpour and then the sun came out. And, you know, the children loved that. You know, they were in appropriate clothing uh, and that was fine. But I've worked with schools who have made that transition to being outside a lot more, particularly, you know, in rainy, cold weather. And what they've done is they've really engaged with parents about this. They've made it very clear. This is our ethos. Uh, and when parents um, sort of raised issues about it, they brought them in and spoke to them about it, which made a, a huge difference. Um, and parents are then, you know, on board with it. And, and they're, you know, fairly happy that their children are coming home muddy. They know they've had a great day. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I, 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 yeah, I certainly think getting out there and, and going, going back to almost having routines, routines, I think are good, yeah. you know, particularly within the early years, you know, going back to almost those sort of repeated patterns of things of going back to the same spaces as adults. Sometimes we kind of think, I think we, we try to keep changing things. Whereas yeah. actually yeah. I think yeah. the way that children respond to things they don't really get, we think they're going to get bored of something, but actually the repeated patterns, I th- I think, are healthy. Yeah. And that actually going back to the same space over and over again, you I think you the, the more shared experiences you have as a group, the more it brings you together. You're kind of creating this sort of community of learners, I suppose. We, we, we used to go, we, we when I, I used to run a, a large early years unit, so with nursery and reception children, and we used to do this thing where every, it was, I think it was every two weeks rather than every week, but every two weeks, we would basically try and sort of grab the parents before they left. And, and we would just sort of, we would just go straight away. Mm. And we would go to the, lo- it sounds very bizarre, but we would go to the local cemetery. The local, <laughs> the local cemetery, which was just around the corner from the school, is an old Victorian cemetery. It's still being used, but it's an old Victorian cemetery and it's mapped out in these sort of fantastic curved pathways with lots of shrubs and old Victorian trees that are, you know, really overgrown. And there's sort of these fantastic den-like spaces that the children could crawl into, which were actually between gravestones, which sounds incredibly macabre. But yeah, um, There's one in Bristol, which is exactly the same. Yeah. You see children picnicking there, and, you know, it's fantastic. I was a bit unsure about it, first of all, but yeah. it's so... As you say, this one's a Victorian cemetery and it's it's huge. I mean, mm. we do find that there are, you know, people have access to no outdoor space. So there's a nursery in oh, sure. uh, London, yeah. a German kindergarten, who are featured in my first book. They have absolutely no outdoor space. So they decide they were right next to a kind of tower block, which has uh, a sort of green space at the front of it. Um, and nobody ever used it. It was used by drug dealers uh, and it was just full of rubbish. And mm. the nursery owners and managers just took a very no-nonsense approach. And they were saying, we're going to reclaim this space. And it, it was really hard. It wasn't easy at all. Um, but they started taking the children there every day. It was only a few feet from where they were. Uh, and they worked hard to sort of garden and get rid of the litter um, and just start to set it up as a child-friendly space. And local people were saying, you know, you won't be able to achieve this. Um, and they they said that the drug dealers were still occasionally used just standing in this space. But then as soon as they took paddling pools there, they took little bikes and they hung up the swimming costumes. They said that was the final straw. The drug dealers <laughs> were, thinking, well, you know, we can't. And they were working in collaboration with the police, but the police could only do so much. And they just stopped using the space. So, you know, some uh-huh. people have gone, gone to remarkable lengths to reclaim a bit of wild space for children. Yeah, which I think is fantastic, isn't it? There's something very rewarding about that, I think. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. I mean, it's probably the same. Sorry, probably the same as other people. I have to sometimes use um, common land, for example. So I've asked permission. So one school, we all go across the road to do the outdoor learning uh, in this piece of common ground. And we've talked to the parish council about that. And that can be quite interesting. I'm sure some of the listeners have a similar situation. So you're interacting with the public quite a bit. I mean, risk assessments are quite different because, uh, you know, it's a, a space where the public can, you know, use that space. You can't completely fence it off from them. Mm-hmm. You're sort of sharing that space. So yeah, there can be challenges, but a lot of benefits there as well. 
yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, which brings us on quite nicely. You mentioning risk just then. It brings us on quite nicely onto risk um, because, of course, that is an element of outdoor learning and outdoor play because generally we are talking about, you know, when we're talking about reclaimed materials, as you, as you mentioned earlier on, generally we're talking about bigger things, aren't we? We're talking about large crates or planks of wood or, you know, cable reels perhaps or something like, you know, the bigger yeah. sorts of materials. And so, of course, that does come with an element of risk. And that can sometimes divide teams, I think. You know, when, when I work with early years teams, on outdoor play, I often feel that there's often a, a kind of a, a quite a large divide sometimes between the put there's one person at one end of the spectrum who is desperate to bring woodwork back in, you know, and who you know who you know really wants to, you know, wants to get the children doing the most incredible things on a big scale outdoors and is all for risk and challenge. Mm -hmm. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody who who when they're outdoors, they are kind of like they're on duty. And they're just waiting yeah. for an accident to happen. They're waiting for something to happen and they hate it. You can see in their body language, they absolutely can't stick it. Yeah. And they're, they're red, they, they just want to make sure everything is safe all of the time. And it's hard. And I get that. And, mm -hmm. and then you've got other people who are kind of in the middle there and, and kind of sort of a bit of both of those sorts of things. And so I thought it would be quite interesting to chat to you about that, about risk and about kind of, uh, about taking risks, the value of risk and challenge, and and how it is very much interwoven, I think, with 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 actually child development and and, and learning outdoors. Yeah, absolutely, okay? yeah, it's crucial to healthy child development, isn't it? And the health and safety executive recognise this. So you know, they say there's. I mean, I'm paraphrasing them, but they say there's no point in wrapping children up in cotton wool. And they say that that's not what they want to say. And specifically in some of their statements, they said, you know, we don't want to see sterile outdoor play environments, which is fantastic. You know, I, I read this and think, hooray. <laughs> uh, you know, they they know that it is a part of uh, healthy child development. I mean, I do have an issue with the term risky play, which is interesting because I've just been commissioned to write a book about risky play. <laughs> We're calling it. The, the working title is Critical Play and the Benefits of Risk um, in the Early Years, because I think risky play is one of those terms that has been misused a little bit. And I do think, you know, sometimes you will find people who saying, oh, we do risky play. You know, we have this and that. And on a Wednesday, they're allowed tools. You know, for me, that isn't <laughs> risky play. It's supporting children to take those challenges. We need to be careful that we're not pushing children into a challenge they're not ready for, but also we're giving children opportunities to challenge themselves and move out of their comfort zone. Uh, so, for example, I remember being at a setting once where I think the children were going to use a rope swing. Uh, and it was a bit unfortunate, really. One of the practitioners said to a, a little boy who was really not keen and, you know, he was being put in a line to do this and he didn't want to do it. She's saying, come on, all the girls have had a go. And I thought, oh, what a shame, <laughs> you know, a, a bit of a shame really, to push them into it when they're not ready for that. Um, and yeah, there's, it yes, is, you're right. That's, that's something different, isn't it? Yeah, that, that is a, that's an interest. That's an interesting side to it, isn't it? That kind of idea of not just taking, not taking risks and everybody taking risks at the same time. Yeah. Uh, almost as a uniform kind of thing, but actually giving children the skills to be able to take some risks and manage that risk 
is a different sort of thing, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And I think yeah. what you were talking about, about the different views of adults, we need to acknowledge that. And with risk assessments, as head of school, oh my goodness, you know, a lot of my time was spent writing policies. And I wasn't head of school during COVID. I, I have so much sympathy for people then because mm. the guidance was changing almost on a daily basis. It was incredibly stressful. But with risk assessments, you need to have as many people involved as possible from the staff team, you know, inputting into those. Um, if you can have sort of three people, for example, on each risk assessment, giving their input, we all need to realise that we have bias about certain areas, uh, even if that's subconscious. And I think if we can become aware of that and we can discuss that and be honest about it. Um, so, for example, I'm pretty confident with most areas of what we term risky play, but uh, ropes do make me nervous because in my NQT year, um, a child from another class um, had an incident with a skipping rope at playtime. Uh, he was absolutely fine, but it was quite scary. And that's something that stayed with me. Uh, whereas other people I know, you know, will have more more sort of issues or worries about, say, climbing and things like that. Climbing is something that I get asked about a lot. But there's also quite controversial areas. I mean, sometimes when I talk to groups of teachers, we talk about weapon play, which is one of comes within Sandsetter's uh, sort of categories of risky play. So even just using pretend weapons, and that's very controversial. A lot of people, you know, will not allow that at all, which is interesting because personally, I see there's a lot of benefits to that. Research has shown it's fantastic in terms of building language and so on, but it really disturbs some people. You know, the a child holding a pretend, you're making a pretend gun out of, you know, their fingers or, uh, you know, that can be something that people feel very uh, anxious about yeah yeah there's some interesting research on that like you say that that actually it for many children um it is a very sociable play but it's how they have um they start with eye contact that it's a, there's a sort of a very much an understanding that this is what we're doing that these two sticks that we both that we're both carrying that actually we know that that's what this is and then it, there's sort of a, a bond there that's formed, a, a relationship around yeah. this sort of imaginative play and this imaginative idea. So, yeah, there, there are actually kind of lots of positives. But, yes, yeah. certainly you're right. Lots of people, for lots of people, it, it, it is risky play, you know, or, you know, it's something yes. that actually they are quite care, careful about, I think. Yes. I mean, we have a, a military camp here. Um, so one of the schools that I regularly go into um, is right next to it. So you can hear gunfire quite regularly yeah. uh, when they're practicing and the children, you know, a lot of their parents work there. Um, so for them, it's role playing, you know, who their mum is or who their dad is. Um, so it's really important to them. And, you know, weapon play is quite an important part of their play. You know, mum or dad, you know, might be away at that time. Uh, and they know, you know, they have some information about what they're doing. So you know, they're role playing being a soldier. And also having done some projects with um, children who've been bereaved um, in early years. So working specifically with a group of children um, who'd lost uh, a parent, they their knowledge of life and death is or, or their understanding of it is very different to ours. So some practitioners I speak I've spoken to who feel really quite disturbed by a child, you know, pretending to have a gun and pretending to shoot another person, that person falling over. Um, these children in early years that I was working with, you know, they would often talk about uh, the parent who died and they'd say, you know, when is mummy coming back? So they're still working through that understanding uh, of death being permanent. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we put our own layer of understanding onto it. Uh, you know, they we might see them as pretending to kill somebody else but there's that lack of permanence in their thinking you know that's 
it's not uh, the same at all. It's more like a, say, a paintball game, you know? Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And and also, I think um, even just sort of quite simple representational play is important. You know, that the idea yeah. that actually this stick could be a gun or, or whatever yeah. it might be, actually... You know, if you if you follow on that trait, that kind of that track of of development, that then means that actually children are then able to understand that that this squiggle on the page is my name. Yeah. You know that. You know that. It's, it's basically it's the same idea, isn't it? That this yeah. represents that. Absolutely. That you know, it, and and children need to build up that idea of representation or abstract in order that actually they can have that idea that 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 a mark on a page could be a number. Yes. Yeah, you know, and, and and so on, or their name, or or whatever it might be. Absolutely, it's interesting, isn't it, to think it through that like that. Yeah. There is a, there's a develop. There, these are all valid developmental stages leading towards yes. that. I, I would say, anyway. Yeah, I mean, one thing I found with you know risky play, if we're thinking about things like you know that you might traditionally associate it with, like using tools, fire, and things like that, maybe climbing to great heights, you know, running at speed. Um, I mean, you do see this competence and the, you know, the capabilities building so much. It was very interesting in my last setting uh, where I worked permanently as a as a reception teacher. We had some children who came from a local commune. Uh, nobody watched TV there. Uh, they were outside all the time. And these three-year-olds were amazing in terms of their fine and gross motor skills. Um, they were incredibly good at climbing. Uh, and it just things like I remember one of them um, in the nursery Uh, someone had knocked over their drink on the floor and this little boy went and got a cloth, mopped it up, refilled their drink for them, went to his own backpack, opened the backpack, which had a little toggle on it, got out his flask, unscrewed both lids, poured himself some goat's milk, um, poured, put both of the lids back on, put it back in the rucksack. And I just watched that happen with, you know, within a few minutes. And I thought, gosh, the dexterity, you know, of these two and three-year-olds was amazing. And I think because they did have more access to challenging play, at home, they had this large shared outdoor space uh, where they were, you know, having a lot of access to, you know, climbing trees and so on. And that was encouraged and supported. And you do see that perseverance, but also that flow and that ability to get into uh, that state of flow without being constantly interrupted, uh, mm. which is something that is so healthy, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I, th- I also think it's quite interesting that often when people talk about high expectations, they're generally talking about high expectations in something that they think of as academic. Yes. Whereas actually yeah. high expectations, if we're talking about high expectations across the board, that when it comes to outdoor learning, high expectations are about are, are about some independence, I think, about children being able to make choices and have ideas, mm-hmm. but also to take some, some risks and to be physically challenged. You know, if, if we're yeah. talking about high expectations, that is in terms of physical development, that's about physical challenge. Yeah, physical absolutely. challenge just generally come with with some risk, doesn't it? You know, you know, can I can I jump over this this yeah. stream? You know, I'm yes. not sure. Am, am I going to get there? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's that sort of actually pushing yourself to do the thing that is might maybe just where you're just not quite sure about yeah. it or or having that thought actually I don't feel safe I'm not going to do it yeah all of that's valuable isn't it you know I, I think you know what I mean I, I think I that's think, really valuable yeah when you talk about those high expectations it's the trust in the child isn't it and we're finding more and more that I mean having worked uh you know I work at university and I've also taught 
um, further education recently. That was quite interesting because I was teaching English to young people who had, I'll put it in quotation marks, failed English. You know, and they felt really down about this. They were forced to retake it. You know, that's the law. They have to keep retaking it until they're 19. Um, and they seem to have such low self-belief. And they also seem to have a real difficulty with decision making. And I think we are finding that because we it's being more and more eroded. I think early years practitioners are fantastic at this, at supporting children to have that level of independence and decision making. But I think as you've hinted at, I think we're losing that as children go through school. And we need to increasingly give children more of those choices. And in terms of, you know, risky play or challenging activities and outdoor learning the children I'm working with they understand there's a reason for it as well which I think is really crucial so you know we're going to you want to saw up this piece of wood because we're going to make uh, a wooden metal you know wooden necklace so yes we're going to need the source so there's a purpose for it uh, and they understand the rules you know there's there's one-to-one supervision on those sort of tools uh, and we've had the tool talks they know how it works uh, and they know what equipment they'll need such as gloves they know their stance to take it's the same with the the fire as well you know they clearly understand those uh, very strict rules about you know where they sit how they uh, depart from the fire area you know stepping back over the benches and so on but they have got this level of independence and they're so motivated you know they like with the palm drills they're quite hard to use uh, and i was at the start when i started doing outdoor learning more full time I was thinking, well, you know, children, nursery and reception won't be able to manipulate these. But oh, my goodness, you know, they want to make a hole in that piece of wood. So, you know, they will. And you see them using skills that perhaps you won't see when they're using a pencil, for example. So they're doing quite complex manipulation here. And it's all fantastic for for mark making, isn't it? And pre-writing, building up that strength in the shoulders and so on. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think that's really interesting. Um, and and it's important that we note that, isn't it? That actually what we're talking about here is for certain elements of risk. So, for example, you know, using tools, that actually we're talking about something that is directly taught as a skill, you know, that, yeah. or or as a, you know, this is how we hold this particular tool, this is how we stand, this is how we put it away, all of those things that are that are important in mm. order to keep us safe. But then beyond that, once we've got those, once we understand what those boundaries might be or what, you know, how we need to use the particular tool and what we don't do with it, then actually there's a level of autonomy, a level of some independence there. And it's that balance that I think is crucial, isn't it, between the two somewhere? Definitely. I mean, I recently worked with a group of children who have... uh, with SEND, you know, they have multiple physical difficulties. Um, and they're, most of them I'd say are working at sort of early years level. Um, and I was contacted by the charity a few weeks later to say that one of the carers had said she was absolutely shocked and surprised and amazed um, by the way that her child had used a drill, uh, a hand drill, and then moving on to use a cordless drill. Uh, and the various tools that they'd used. And she said it had certainly had an influence on her expectations, which was quite interesting because I think she thought that that was something that he wouldn't be able to do and we do find that sometimes settings can restrict uh, children with send uh, and we can maybe lower our expectations I think that's something to think about but Mm. I mean I I wanted to say about my friend who's worked in early years for over 30 years and she said the worst accident she ever had or witnessed you know in the playground uh, was when a three-year-old was on a scooter slipped and it was just a really freak accident and the handlebar uh, went into his cheek, through his cheek. 
Um, he was absolutely fine. He obviously went to hospital, um, had to have surgery. Um, but of course, they didn't then ban scooters. They're so, you know, there can be risk yeah. involved yeah, in yeah. everything. And I think something we need to do um, is I mean, we can't really plan for something like that. It wasn't slippery. You know, it was the middle of the mm-hmm. summer. It was just a, a complete freak accident. Um, but we do need to involve children in the risk assessments as well. And in terms of loose parts, you know, my class would be great at coming to me and saying this plastic crate um, has now split. You know, we used to keep them outside. So in the icy weather, you know, they might become split and so on. And they were really good at, you know, assessing those risks themselves. And I know so many earlier settings are brilliant uh, at getting children to do that initial risk assessment of the outdoor area. So, you know, we're looking for things like spotting animal feces or sometimes we'd have other human visitors who'd come in overnight, you know, and getting the children involved in that sort of risk assessment is great. Yes. I mean, yes. And some settings are, are, are fantastic at this level of autonomy. One Scottish setting were telling me that they use a park um, and the children will even point out broken glass, which might have been left there over the the weekend and they will even use they've got a little sharps box and little gloves that the children use at nursery and they they put the gloves into the box yeah so some some nurseries really do embrace that very high level of autonomy but it's about having those discussions as staff team you know what what does make you feel personally uncomfortable and you know what level of challenge or autonomy are we willing to to look at here yeah no, it's, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I love that idea, actually, of children being involved in, in the risk assessment process. I think that's that's really adding value to the whole process, isn't it? That it's not just something that goes on that they don't know about, but that actually you're involving them in the conversation about what might not be safe when Definitely. we go to the space and what to keep an eye out for and what to watch out for. I think that's that's really valuable. And I think that's they're great. really good at dynamic risk assessment, which is what we would do all the time in early years. Obviously, we've got mm-hmm. our risk assessment policies then I'll have specific policies for fire uh, and things like that and tool use um but you know we're, we're constantly looking at you know situations and and we're really good aren't we at thinking oh you know those two children you know we know there's been a, an issue in the past uh, but try not to step in too too quickly um but children can be really good dynamic risk assessors so you know they you hear these fantastic conversations when you've involved them in the risk assessment process. So, you know, I heard a child in, in reception saying, oh, you know, if you uh, move over there, because they were swinging a rope round and round, it was starting to hit children who were using the large sandpit. And this child was saying, we, we can't move the sandpit, but you can move a little bit. So if you move over there, then when you're swinging your rope, you won't hit other children. And the child said, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. And it was great to hear yeah. these conversations and the, the thinking going on and solutions being come up with. So, yeah, no, that, that's great. You know, that sort of negotiation, I think, is important, isn't it? Really important. Yeah. I think we, we're finding increasingly, I mean, I'm, when I'm going into settings, you know, post-pandemic and post-lockdowns, uh, conflict is something that children are having difficulties working through. And it's it's hard to take a step back sometimes I mean, obviously, we don't want children to get injured, but it's really healthy to try and support children to work through those processes. And I think it's more of a challenge these days than it was before. That's certainly what I'm noticing, you know, in terms of building that self-regulation. That's a real challenge for early years practitioners yes. at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting stuff, Sarah. Um, I'm just aware of time and we, we, we better let you go. Um, just before you go, you mentioned earlier on that you are currently writing a book. And um, I, I was interested interested to know um, at what stage you're at. Are we, are we right at the very beginning of the process, or are we near the end near the end of the process? At what point will we will we see it on the shelf? 
It is going to be a little while. We've just got the contract uh, this week. So uh, it's myself uh, and Zoe Sills, who's based in Scotland. Uh, and she's um, done some fantastic work in terms of risk, actually. Uh, so she's run various nurseries in Scotland. And in some ways, I think, you know, because they've had such a different curriculum, it's really interesting to, to bring together an English author and a Scottish author to look at, you know, early years and, and risk and so on. So we'll be looking at the environment, uh, how to set up the, that environment in terms of challenge. Also, not just the physical environment, but also that emotional environment. So making sure that there's no discrimination um, because research has shown that you know there can be discrimination in terms of risky play, uh, in terms of race and sex, gender. So it's yeah, it can be quite interesting. Um, and looking at definitions and benefits, and we want it to be a very practical book. So that is our remit: looking at risky play and practice, uh, and lots of practical advice and tips. That's, it sounds fantastic. It sounds great. It really oh, does. It really does. Well, Sarah, it has been absolutely lovely to talk to you. It's been wonderful to chat to you um, about something that I think both of us are, are so passionate about. You know, getting it right in terms of outdoor learning is so important, I think, for, for so many reasons, as, as we've talked about earlier on. So, yeah, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm sure for, for people who live in the Herefordshire area, watch out for Sarah on her bike, um, going past you, give her a wave. and. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it's been absolutely lovely to chat to you, and uh, and, and lovely to meet you. So oh, yeah, thank, thank you, so you thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Andy. So there you have it. Thank you very much to Sarah for joining us on this week's episode of the podcast. And also, of course, thank you to you people for listening along as well. Um, now, that just about brings us to a, the end of today's episode, but it also just about brings us to the end of our episodes for this year as well, uh, because this is our last episode before Christmas. So it seems like a good point really to thank lots of people. Um, so I'd like to say a very big thank you to everyone who's been a guest on our podcast this year. Uh, we've had so many brilliant guests and I really appreciate people giving their time up uh, to be interviewed on the podcast. Um, and also, of course, um, a big thank you to lots of people who work behind the scenes uh, to put the podcast out. So um, Simon Clifton, who uh, is one of our brilliant team members at Early Excellence. He works behind the scenes editing the podcast. Uh, he makes sense of all of the audio files that I send to him and uh, and puts it out there. So a um, big thank you to him and also everybody else who works behind the scenes as well, including Nikki Walters and, uh, of course, Luella Ivins has been involved in many of the episodes as well. So very big thank you to those people. Um, and that's about it. Um, thank you ever so much for listening this year. It's been brilliant to, to catch up with so many people. It's been lovely to see how the podcast itself has grown in terms of listeners. I keep bumping into people on training who tell me that they listen along, which is fantastic. Um, have a great Christmas, everybody. Um, we'll see you again in January. We'll be back with lots of new episodes. Until then, have a brilliant rest over Christmas and we will see you in the new year. All the best, everybody. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.